I don't see professional and impartial journalists anymore, but I see professional journalists who've become social warriors. So said posthumous journalist and columnist Preet Pulleritz earlier today when we're recording. Welcome to Questonia, an independent fortnightly podcast that asks the questions we're interested in knowing the answers to in Estonian news and hopes you'll be interested in them too. And hey, if that makes us a bunch of SJWs, then feel free to buy us a t-shirt. Worth mentioning is this this is news analysis and opinion and we record this on a Wednesday evening and distribute it on a Thursday. Um, Therefore, our stories are based on our best research and our honest opinions at that time in the news cycle. So, when you're listening, things may be slightly out of date, in which case we can only apologise. You're listening to the first episode. I'm Stuart Garlick. I live in Tallinn and I've covered Estonia for a variety of websites and publications. I'll be joined in each fortnightly show by a series of guests and for each show I'll be joined by Estonian, German and English language journalist Maris Helrand. Welcome Maris and how are you coping with the new normal, working in quarantine, having less time to yourself, that kind of thing? I'm coping very well actually. I um, The quarantine hasn't changed my lifestyle a lot at all. I'm not getting out uh, working for TV projects a lot but uh, my my work normally is from home from my computer and um, not much has changed for me actually right so uh, for for example um, the social distancing well that's something we've explored before that estonians are very good at doing anyway but uh, has the daily pace of life changed at all for you i miss my yoga classes but i go out running and um, i see people so um, even if from a distance and my kids are at home doing homeschooling so but they are luckily uh, at at an age where they are quite independent and able to self motivate <laughs> so i'm not uh, uh, needing to get involved in that too much oh great stuff that's awesome um i i wish i was self motivated as it sounds like your kids are but uh, it, it's a good thing anyway uh, this podcast seeks to raise awareness and donations for Kurosada Hospital, which is uh, the hospital uh, in the capital of Saaremaa, which is Estonia's biggest island. And um, it's trying its very best to overcome the worst outbreak of coronavirus in Estonia. Even though it now seems like Estonia is flattening the curve, the island of Saaremaa still has far more cases than any other region, and so the hospital needs and welcomes your kind donations. Now, um, I'll give details in a moment, but uh, Maurice, uh, you helped film a recent video article... Uh, sorry, uh, <coughs> Uh, Maurice, you helped film a recent video made by the BBC about Saaremaa, uh, where Kurosawa Hospital is located. Um, why do you think they are still welcoming public donations? And um, also, uh, why is it so important that, uh, um, that, that we look to Saaremaa right now and that we help them out over there? Well... Um... There has been a lack of PPEs ev- everywhere, not just in Kurasara, and obviously with a number of patients quite high there for this uh, this uh, small local hospital. Um, it's um, it's crucial that they they do get the, the resources. Kurasara and Sarema were the hotspot of um, the coronavirus in Estonia, and uh, actually the per capita number of people infected there was uh, uh, one of the highest in in Europe taken by uh, regions and by countries especially d- difficult for the whole island now that because the the Sarema island relies heavily on uh, tourism industry and the season is just about to kick in with the migrating birds in the in the spring and then um, there are a lot of uh, spa and hotel facilities in Sarema that uh, are big employers so all of this uh, is likely to um, take uh, quite a while to uh, get going again so that's why um, that's why Kurasara and Sarama are uh, sort of a great example of uh, of the overall effect of the of the pandemic and for any of our listeners who uh, maybe aren't in Estonia or would just like to know more about uh, Sarama 
uh, and how it's fighting coronavirus. Uh, why why did it have the single biggest outbreak of uh, any region of Estonia? Um, I, I know that uh, there was a volleyball tournament uh, that was held there, which is uh, being uh, blamed in large part for it. But is there more to it than that? In addition to the volleyball tournament, that was a that was two games with a uh, super team from Milan in the beginning of March and. Um, the guidelines given by the health board were not clear enough. So the organizers uh, were were asking for advice if to go ahead or to cancel. The guidelines were not not clear enough. It's it's uh, it's uh, not not a time to uh, pinpoint on to say who is responsible. However, the mayor of Sarama, Madis Kallas, has actually taken the political responsibility and has resigned over this. So, um, uh, most likely, these two games were the were the main reason. And then a lot of people who attended the volleyball games also went on to attend a champagne festival. Um, on the same uh, in the same week so the virus uh, could uh, spread even further and that's all it takes there's a battle to fight but uh, they have uh, managed to flatten the curve and uh, the restrictions in Sarama have been much uh, stricter than in the rest of Estonia that was the uh, cause of, of course, the uh, the weekend uh, sit-down protest in the main square in Kurosara and various other places across the um, island of Sarima. Um And um, it, it caught a lot of, uh, it caused a lot of jollity on social media on Monday because, uh, you know, people were able to point to, oh, this is how Estonians do protests, uh, you know, uh, sit, sitting in perfectly distanced chairs uh, outside, outside their homes, uh, protesting silently against the then restrictions. Um, can we say that this protest had any bearing whatsoever on the lifting of restrictions or uh, are the two things coincidental? They might not be quite coincidental. It's it's uh, it's a curious situation, yes, because within um, the rules of the emergency situation, protests are actually banned, and there is no um, there is no up, uh, low, lower limit for uh, people attending a meeting that would be called a protest. So, it, in according to the to the rules one person standing on a square can be considered a uh, protest already which would be forbidden so it's um, it's uh, odd that the the event could go on in sarama but uh, maybe uh, maybe the police in sarama were already um, fed fed up with the situation themselves i don't know obviously there were no, uh, it was not just the protest uh, the sarama municipality and different uh, entrepreneurs from the island had already reached out to the government and to the crisis committee and asked for uh, relaxation of the of the rules but um, the way this um, Sarama situation and the situation of the islands was handled in the beginning of the week by the government and by the crisis committee consisting of government ministers sheds quite a quite a bit of a light to uh, the overall handling style of of this uh, or during this crisis because on Monday it looked as if it was a result of the of the sit down protest on Sunday government um, decided to allocate uh, special permits to islands for people to move on a daily basis, which didn't uh, seem like a great idea because it was uh, limited to dozens per day and uh, it would have created an added administrative task to uh, the local municipalities to decide on some sort of criteria who will get the permits. So it, that didn't uh, didn't really look like a very smart move. And then the next morning they decided to open up travel to and from the islands for locals and for work-related travel starting from the 4th of May and, then, and to open up the islands for everyone starting from the 18th of May, provided there is no new outbreak and there is no, no reason um, 
retract from this uh, relaxation. Uh, perhaps I could uh, just just drill down into where you said that protests are technically banned under the emergency situation. Um, two protesters uh, were dispersed from, um, I think it was Reykjavikplatz in Tartu, um, for protesting the emergency measures. Um, but they were standing two metres apart, and um, the only thing that marked them out as a protest rather than just a two plus two meeting was uh, was the signs they were holding. Are protests specifically banned or do they just come under public meetings or what's actually happening there? Legally, uh, a protest, legally, there's no such thing as a protest. Legally, a protest is a public meeting. So, uh, yes, by law, uh, protests slash public meetings are banned under the emergency situation rules. This is, uh, we have asked uh, the Chancellor of Justice for the, for, her opinion on that, and uh, yes, if the epidemic if the epidemic is uh, cause enough, it's justified. But uh, as soon as uh, as the overall rules are being relaxed, this is something that needs to be relaxed as well. So if we, uh, as we see right now, that the government has decided, or the the crisis committee has decided, that from the weekend onwards, people can. Um, to outdoor sports, if if they are uh, keeping the two by two uh, uh, rule in groups of ten, then I, I I can't see any justification to uh, say that you can't go out and have a public meeting slash protest if you keep to the two by two rule. And this really plays into something we'll talk about more later on, which is how. The longer the emergency situation remains legally in force, the more it serves a group of people who maybe it would be in their interests to be able to, you know, uh, decide on a case by case basis what's allowed, would you say? That's that's always the the danger in, in that kind of situation, that um, people who have the power are tempted to abuse it. Until this week, all of Estonia's western islands were totally locked down with no passenger travel permitted to or from the islands. This was obviously an uncomfortable situation. Saaremaa was the island, as we've said, uh, where the virus had taken hold the most. But all of the Estonian islands, including Hiumaa, Vormsi, Ruhnu and Kihnu, were shut off from the mainland. With restrictions now being gradually lifted, I spoke to Jan Kontka, an entrepreneur and co-owner of Ungru Restaurant and Guesthouse on Hiuma, about what life has been like for a small business owner on an island in lockdown. Uh, the guesthouse is rather small, it only has uh, four rooms, so uh, we're not like that big uh, probably in that context. Uh, but otherwise, uh, it also depends on the weather. Currently, the weather is nice and probably people would like to go outside. So in that uh, case, uh, it would be rather nice uh, spring. And also the thing is that uh, the winter time is uh, rather harsh in uh, Hiyoma and also the locals don't go out too much. So uh, the spring is like a good uh, positive kick. Uh, for the summer to, uh, when the, some people start going around and you get some revenue so it's uh, it's it, it's a, a sad thing but uh, I'm also wrong person to talk about it because I'm uh, rather optimistic in every part of the life right and has it been hard as a small business owner to remain optimistic in the uh, in the emergency situation in Estonia Kind of, uh, yeah, well, of course, in our case, you know, we were somewhat ready for the seasonal uh, uh, difficulty. And uh, for us, maybe it still uh, is possible to open uh, the restaurant in June. I don't know what, what are the restrictions exactly, but I, I see that there is, is some uh, possibilities that something will happen. So in that sense, you, you know, still it was... Uh, uh, optimistic view on uh, on the whole summer so too early to say today i think but but overall i know that you know a lot of people here uh depend on uh, on the tourists because you know you can sell smoked fish or you know other small things that they have made during the winter time so it will be hard uh, in autumn 
to what extent uh, is uh, your your restaurants uh, reliant on the tourist trade? So, uh, is it mostly a place for locals, or um, are you reliant on people discovering it and uh, you know making the trip to it when they're on the island? Yeah, when we talk about Tioma, then uh, it's still a relatively small uh, uh, place, or you know, very little, few people, only maybe six, seven thousand people all year around on as uh, big area as uh, Haryuma. So uh, there's a lot of room and a lot of space. And uh, in uh, like I said, in wintertime, it's it's difficult to get uh, get customers. How much of a problem would it be if um, if there were special measures applied to the islands for a much longer period, say into June on, or until the end of June, for example? Well, it will be hard anyway, because uh, also, you know, a lot of things depend on bigger uh, events and uh, festivals or maybe, you know, there aren't too many big festivals, but there are still gatherings in Hiyuma, like uh, the Midsummer Day and then there's the cafeteria days and so on. And also like big weekends and getting here on a ferry also, you can uh, fit more people uh, without sitting in the car. So it will definitely uh, be uh, hard, but at the same time, I think, uh, for example, if I talk about Ungro, then I know that uh, a lot of people have called and written that uh, they are very supportive and if uh, it's possible, they will come. So I think the, the bigger and uh, better or, you know, stronger brands uh, or also, you know, better places uh, will do more or less fine, but uh, everybody will have to cut uh, maybe people, maybe maybe even the whole business, we'll see. And uh, this gradual lifting of restrictions, uh, obviously it changes from week to week, but uh, at this point in time when we're recording this, uh, they've, they've announced that um, c- certain consumer enterprises will be back open. From your point of view, uh, we've seen restaurants reopen in the last uh, few days in Tallinn, uh, some of them with a two plus two arrangement. So the uh, tables are at least two metres apart and they only have two seats per table. Is that something that you anticipate doing in in the short term to try and get a limited number of customers back in? Of course, uh, if it's needed, then we will follow the rules and we'll do our best uh to make it most comfortable, but uh, how it will turn out, uh, we'll see. Now, currently, still, you know, I'm pretty optimistic uh, that uh, may- maybe the rules aren't that uh, strict, or I don't know. I, I don't really believe in this uh, two plus two uh, rule. In you know, if you're sitting in a big room all together, the bacteria is more or less probably in the room anyway. <laughs> So, so, so I don't know how it like you know works out that yeah let's be two meters apart and then everything will be fine. So they also told that you know the open uh, air festivals can be possible, but uh, but depends on how big are the events. So uh, so it's I think kind of early because they've made a lot of changes in the storyline. So let, let's see. We live uh, by the government rules currently. Do you find, as a business owner, the messaging to be a bit too confused and a bit too difficult to actually follow? Well, I think uh, it is difficult uh, to conduct uh, the correct messages uh, in this case, but uh, I would expect a a lot more better work from the government. But, you know, how to do it right, it depends, you know, what uh, what knowledge and what people they can... uh, ask information and so on so it's very difficult for me in Hiyuma to discuss uh, that matter overall. Um, Listening back to that interview Maurice, um, how fair do you feel the restrictions until last week were on Hiyuma islanders who were not as badly affected as their neighbours on Saurima? Well this was another sort of an ad hoc and knee-jerk kind of decision because uh, the situation on Sarama was absolutely not comparable to all the other islands. So um, to to impose uh, the same kind of restriction of movement for all islands where uh, there were no cases on Rufno, Wormsi, Kihno, and there was like one case in Hioma where you could easily, easily isolate uh, the the single cases. 
I, I don't think it was uh, really justified. I mean, it was told that uh, in in case of Hiyuma, the worry was that the hospital in Hiyuma is very small and would not be able to cope, which is a valid point, but it's a, a very scarcely populated island. And uh, it should have been possible to look at it uh, uh, more in a more fluid uh, manner and, uh, and uh, definitely handle it in a different manner than uh, than Sadama, which was the hotspot of the virus. Uh, the crisis committee has also announced that as long as cases uh, stay at roughly the level they are now or go down, uh, they will lift all of the travel restrictions to Hiumar and various of the other major islands on the 18th of May. Uh, is, that a, is that a sensible timetable? Um, is there any cause for concern there, do you think? I think it's a sensible timetable in general. It's um, it, I I don't share the uh, disappointment of people who say that we need uh, exact dates. We 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 need um, we need criteria, but we uh, and uh, that that needs to be uh, that needs to be very very clear to understand what the, what the numbers are doing before we open up uh, new uh, areas of life or new uh, or the islands but uh, in that case i think 18th of may sounds like a reasonable like a reasonable plan there are lots of people out there i'm sure who are also sick and tired of uh, washing their vegetables in washing up liquid so um it's good from that point of view that uh, we seem to be flattening the curve and the government issued uh, its uh, draft exit strategy last Wednesday for um, coming out of the emergency situation and returning to normal, as it puts it. Although, of course, the normal that we come to is highly debatable. It has a series of checks and balances that uh, he says must be fulfilled in order for a gradual return of some um, to of society to some kind of normal. Um, and th- these range from uh, the number of infected people per day um, uh, staying consistent or going down. Um, uh, it's going to look at the number of people in hospital uh, for COVID-19, uh, the coverage of intensive care units, access to medical care, uh, people's willingness to follow government guidelines, uh, the general health of the economy, uh, capacity to implement confidence building measures and the epidemiological situation um, and measures against COVID-19 in the region in EU member states and in third countries. Um, what did you make of the draft exit strategy and also the various amendments tabled by opposition parties, Maris? Actually, uh, the main thing that was missing in the exit strategy at first anyway, uh, was uh, the plan how to how to live with the virus in a in a post uh, sort of in a flatter curve situation because we we uh, assume that the, there's not going to be a vaccine very soon there's not going to be a proper treatment very soon so these measures right now there is all these restrictions were done in order to slow down the spread so we can't uh, we can't uh, sort of um, we need to be uh, much better prepared for new cases still coming up within the coming months and um, not get all excited about it and say oh we need to lock down again we need to lock down again these uh, six weeks have have were meant to buy us time to be better prepared to be better prepared in the hospitals and with the PPEs, etc. So um, that was that part was all missing from the exit strategy. It seems that today there has been uh, there have been some amendments where we can see that the government is actually planning for that. So uh, this is this is quite reassuring. Yes, uh, the the exit strategy has to show that we can um, sort of live with the virus for a foreseeable time reasonably. Mm. Um, and uh, that's why that's why I, I'm I'm not uh, 
worried about um, lacking dates because we really have to look at what's what's the situation and uh, and uh, make decisions according to that. But but of course, for people who run businesses and who run the economy and who teach children and so on. They, for them to make some sort of planning, it's necessary that there is that there is good data to have to base base these decisions on. So uh, uh, there is an awful lot of uh, um, mess with the data at the moment still, and um, that's um, that's uh, what's a bit worrying. Are you at all worried about the possibility of the emergency situation continuing beyond when it needs to? Uh, yes, I think that's uh, that's sort of a that's a, a temptation, you know, for the politicians to um, keep these uh, special emergency situation powers because a lot of the you need well technically you need emergency situation in order to implement fast changes to close down a school you need that or um, to do these um, isolation measures but you don't actually need the emergency powers uh, for opening up the, the society again it's a, a legal situation a legal framework that enables the, the government to make decisions quicker and to, to bypass the parliament and I think now we have bought enough time so that we don't need to bypass the parliament any longer and the different stakeholders who are who are uh, affected by the different uh, measures and decisions. So uh, there clearly is a temptation to keep this uh, framework that enables to make decisions quicker and consult the stakeholders less and consult the parliament less. But I hope um, there's uh, enough resistance to that as well. There, there's there's a lack of masks on the streets. Uh, pe people are not uh, generally keeping distance unless they're specifically asked to. Um, I was in I was in the local store the other day and people were just not respecting the two meter lines um and you know uh it's it's spring now so the barbecues are starting the uh the the invitations to uh festivities are starting um you, you know there there is uh, following following the law which i think the majority of people are doing and there is following what will prevent the spread of covid-19 which might well be a different thing and human nature is just kind of giving up a little bit on these uh, strict precautions and thinking, well, we're winning the battle. Um, are we celebrating a bit too early here? Might there be a resurgence? Uh, who has the, the glass ball to say that? Mm. I, I don't, and I, I haven't seen enough, uh, enough data to uh, base a prediction on that. But what a, about the human nature and, uh, and the human psychology? Um, Obviously, there's this um, prevention paradox that works here. So uh, that's something that uh, that is, uh, statisticians um, um, use to describe uh, a situation where measures that that, that um, measures are being taken in order to prevent a bad thing to happen and when this bad thing then doesn't happen as a result of these measures people say we shouldn't we we overreacted we didn't need to take these measures so this is something that is unavoidable and it's it's a normal normal reaction in this situation but the other thing is also that uh, in order to change behavior of people you need trust uh, credit of trust is the biggest resource of a government or of a body leading in a crisis. And uh, we haven't seen exactly a large amount of trust being towards the government being built within the last year. I mean, even looking at the support numbers, if you think of Angela Merkel right now, or even Boris Johnson, or even the Italian Prime Minister Conti, where the situation has been so, so grave, all of their support numbers are uh, near 80%. Yuri Ratta's support number is 36%. So uh, this is a 
Trust is a credit that you build up during peaceful times in order to tap into it during a crisis. And you can make people behave in a certain way if you have this trust. If you don't, you can't force people to um, change their behavior by law or by rules. So um, that's that's sort of a payback time for this, I think. But, but um, a human nature... The basic instinct is to stay alive, so I think people still will, will be quite uh, quite reasonable. The other thing, of course, is uh, also this mixed messaging. I mean, the masks is the best example of very, very confusing messaging. We have um, had weeks where different government ministers are saying quite opposite things about wearing masks in public. And then instead of saying, please wear masks, they say, they talk about the wearing of masks should become a social norm. And then there are some others like Jakob who's saying wearing of masks should be a law. And um, so if you have this confusing messaging, people don't know what to do. There's a lack of these masks. And they cost a lot of money. So uh, I guess opt out is in a confusing situation is the logical choice of people. And I wonder as well if we're perhaps seeing the logical conclusion of years, really. Um, and I'm not just picking on this government in particular, but years of governments feeling more and more distant from the people who uh, may have elected them. So um, I remember Justin Petrone, the American writer who lives in Estonia, uh, wrote uh, when Andres Anzip was Prime Minister of Estonia that uh, he had something of a father-knows-best mentality about him when, whenever he spoke to the public. And there was a little bit of that in the Twitter reaction to Yuri Ratas's speech um, about the emergency situation three weeks ago at the weekend. Uh, some people were saying, where was the new information in that? Um, that was complete. That was completely useless. It was just the same information again. And other people were saying there was no humanity in it. Now, I, I think maybe um, we collectively underestimate how important humanity and that kind of touchy-feely side is to a prime minister and to a crisis government, uh, don't we? Yes, absolutely, and uh, it's um, luckily we live in a in a very connected uh, era, so we can see positive examples of how to handle this crisis. If we look uh, down under what what the Prime Minister of New Zealand has done, this is amazing, and she the way she has uh, handled the crisis and the way the the public and the the, the voters have trusted her her leadership is a fantastic example so um this it's uh, it's it's uh, it should become a textbook um, case for uh, all politicians i hope uh, the, that's something we learn out of this <laughs> yeah um the social democrats uh, in their amendment to the exit strategy uh suggested having a human behavior expert uh, on on the crisis committee uh to to, to give their take on, um, as in the behavioural take on how people would react to law changes and to a gradual re relaxing of uh, emergency laws. Um, first of all, what do you make of that? And also, um, what, um, why are these outside experts not being utilised more by governments in general and by this government in particular? Well, I think, first of all, this is a very, um, very reasonable um, suggestion. And um, um, I recognize a lot from actually from this um, book, uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling in this, in this idea, who, uh, who, is a, who was an epi epidemiologist and uh, has actually built up the Swedish model of, uh, of uh, uh, healthcare system. And uh, uh, Exactly. I mean, the the you have to look at the society as a whole when when uh, dealing with these measures. And Estonia just doesn't have this kind of experience. And um, the the advice uh, of experts has become undervalued in in an era where everybody knows best and when where Google is your expert and. Uh, and um, 
also it's um, there there were telling signs before i mean uh, before the last elections um, all parties except for ecra pledged um, a raise of um, of budget for um, science and research and this didn't happen so um, you can you can talk about uh, trusting science and experts but if you don't fund it it's just talk and then in the reality when uh, when you are in need um this um this mistrust is just being carried on so um that's um that's very sad and as a society we are going to pay for it hmm. And uh, this this uh, mistrust as well may, maybe is reflected in, as you said, the fact that uh, pe- people are, um, yes, paying attention to the guidelines, but then um, many people are doing their own thing. Um, I've, I've already mentioned a few specific examples, but uh, also there is... Uh, the growth, um, mostly coming from the United States, but um, but also you know Googleable anywhere of COVID denial, and the the government has said many times, and doctors have said many times, what people need to do uh, to uh, avoid being infected themselves and to avoid being carriers. Um, but if people don't listen to that and find their media and their news elsewhere, what can possibly be done? Well, this is uh, this um, conspiracy theories um, and people not believing in COVID being a thing and people believing in Bill Gates uh, wanting to control the world and believing 5G masks cause COVID and so on is also actually related to the general trust in the government and in the public sphere. If we have a party in the in the government who has been fighting the so-called deep state and uh, and um, uh, officials for a year and longer then why would and preaching this why would why would their voters all of a sudden start trusting these um, uh, these officials like the health board and following the guidelines if the if the trust into these institutions has been undermined by the very same government who now wants people to trust the the advice of these experts and officials so it's it's a it's a very very problematic. How ready are we for what uh, people believe will be a a winter resurgence of this virus? So it's 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 likely scientists believe to be largely dormant through the warmer months and then to come back big style in in the autumn. So um, we, we're talking about schools going back in September and we're talking about universities reopening in September as well, um, but. What what happens if they uh, have to close and go back to Zoom classes, and uh, if you know the gyms and the shopping centres and uh, everywhere else that people get their work from also have to close? Um, we're going to be in a bad state if this happens again, aren't we? We are, but I do really hope that we are able to use these uh, summer months and the, the time we've won right now already to uh, to uh, be better prepared in terms of. Um, uh, healthcare facilities ability to to uh, take on uh, the possible new uh, number of infections and new patients without having to um, cut down on the regular uh, planned uh, surgeries and that the schools can go back to work because what's happening right now with a long summer break in Estonia as well that uh, the education gap is uh, getting a lot bigger there's uh there's research um saying that um children especially specifically in primary school age uh, if they have a very long summer break they lose a lot of what they have learned especially maths so if now in some cases um i mean we are I think we are very good at this homeschooling and uh, remote schooling in Estonia but there are still uh, there's still going to be uh, evidence very soon to show that children from more disadvantaged or more fragile uh, social environments are are being left behind. And uh, if uh, we count the summer holidays, three months, and we count we add to this the almost three months of missed school, that will amount for an for a whole school year that they will be left behind. So this is a this is a, a long term 
this is a real problem. For a, to close down school for a few weeks is fine. Nobody's going to get hurt. But uh, if uh, but to uh, stop education for six months will make a difference, and that will make a long term difference. So I really do hope that we we get this act together and would be really really prepared and will not have to uh, close the schools in the autumn. As a counterpoint, I, I know there are some countries where parents are literally having to homeschool because there is no distance learning um, uh, resource or community there. Uh, so from that point of view, schools in Estonia or at least the better appointed schools and universities in the main cities have done a great job of instituting distance learning but uh, it, it still feels quite improvised in many ways, doesn't it? Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, the, the need or the necessity is actually the best driver of all, this, uh, all these changes. And uh, of course, kids are really well equipped to deal with the technology, but the technology only is not enough. They need um, social interaction and need... Uh, to develop their emotional intelligence as well. So uh, this this can't happen during remote learning. They need their friends and they need to, um, to interact in a physical room as well. And then with children, not everyone is mature enough to self-motivate and uh, not everyone has the support of their parents to do that. And uh, this is uh, probably hitting hardest, actually, people who are um, the so-called frontline workers. We'll be back after these. Kuresare Hospital on the island of Saarema is the place in Estonia where coronavirus has hit the hardest. The hospital needs money to buy 18,000 masks per month during peak COVID-19 season and around 1,000 extra protective suits. Please donate whatever you can using the details on facebook.com forward slash Now, um, on to something slightly lighter and non-corona related. Uh, Tradatak are one of the most successful Estonian acts in recent years. And since their debut album Ah was released in 2013, they've gained a cult following and toured the world. The three-piece band's new album is called Make Your Move, and I spoke to Sandra Vabana about the record. It seems like every time you release an album, you've released three now, uh, there are some differences and some changes in, in, in your sound and in the band. So um, maybe you'd like to start by telling me um, what what are the differences between when you released the last album and now in, ter in terms of the group and your development and also your songwriting and uh, how you put the songs together? First of all, of course, we are different. After all this uh, touring with the last album, uh, and uh, I think after all these concerts, uh, we have so much live experience. And also, we were so uh, already tired of playing the previous album that we were uh, waiting to get in the studio and create some new music. So, um, uh, and we actually took quite long time to create this album. Uh, the first ideas, I think we recorded two years ago already. And uh, then uh, we had a little, uh, you know, more relaxed period because we all um, uh, got children. <laughs> and, uh, and then we started uh, to uh, create again and again. And it was really intensive period last, uh, last spring. And we were in the studio and uh, we actually, we decided that we won't make uh, like a, another uh, Shimmer Gold album, which was called, which was our last album. But so what we did is uh, kind of, we had this idea like how loud, how big can one three piece band actually sound? <laughs> and uh, we tried out different things. Uh, for example, I, first time I tried uh, different guitar uh, uh, pedals uh, with a backpipe. And I got so cool sounds out of it. So that was totally new world I discovered. And uh, and also we tried out some synths and some is it keyboards? Yes, keyboards. Hmm. And uh, we kind of went. Uh, you could say crazy, but we went uh, 
so um, we didn't have any borders. You don't. We, we didn't have to uh, put anything to a certain kind of box. So we could think outside of the box. So that's what we did. But uh, even though we didn't know, you know, how our old fans would react to that, mm. and uh, we had kind of very mixed uh, reactions to the first single. And um, and people actually realized some of the us uh, some of our our friends even told us oh that's so nice comeback we were like comeback from where <laughs> we have been always doing something and uh, but that's a good thing because people realized that we were doing something differently and that's uh, that's the main thing kind of uh, for us that we feel uh, we feel like fresh again and it's not just another album for us but it's uh, for us, it's some different kind of direction. More rocky sound, more poppy sound, more uh, uh, maybe punk sound, more this uh, maybe aggressive, but at the same time showing also really soft side with this one palette. So it's it's kind of very mixed album. I, I know that uh, back when we spoke five years ago after the first album, uh, you were the person very much saying that we we need to be a unified band and this needs to be our main focus so uh, it, it seems very much like uh, everyone has abandoned their various side projects and are focusing wholesale on on trad attack uh, is, is that how you see it and is that deliberate uh, in an attempt to sort of develop the sound hmm. i didn't know that i was i told that <laughs> but uh, it it has uh, yeah it actually has happened like a natural way because we got more and more concerts and uh, we just didn't have time for other projects. And if you want to, you know, also enjoy life and also sleep, then you have to start to choose something. And uh, I think we are very satisfied at the moment with this situation that we have the one main thing. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, we can't do the side projects. If we have the time and we have, if we have the energy, yes, we do. Like Yalmar has his... Uh, guitar thing he's i think he's developing some kind of a guitar school at the moment and then is also having, having actually a solo project so uh, they are doing uh yeah side project as well but yeah we like to keep the focus uh, on the band thing because at the moment the thing is it's not only about writing good songs uh you know you you in order to uh, be visible, be visible, you have to do all these other things as well. You mentioned that you that you're the archive nerd of the group, as you said. Um, I, I know that uh, for for the for the first album, ah, um, it was constructed from various archive recordings from years and years ago. Uh, second album. Um, was also archive based. This one, there are archive elements to this, and if so, where do they fit in, and how? Yes, there are actually. Uh, there is one uh, totally full uh, song, uh, a lullaby, the last song, and this is sang by an old lady. Like we really use this old archive recordings, and uh, and then there is some um, elements. Like there is one vocal chop thing uh, in one of the singles that we released. I think it was the second one. And there is also this. Uh, the, the vocal chop is made out of this archive recording. And all of the lyrics almost are actually also from the archive. It was just because this time we didn't find so many good recordings, but we found really cool uh, lyrics that we wanted to use. Because it's not, you know, you can't um, go and ask, <laughs> give me some good recordings if there aren't any. You just have to go through and through and see if you find some. Um, w would you say there's something quite contemporary in the way, in, in the sort of repetitive rhythms? Um, is there something there that reminds you of modern day dance music? And uh, if, if so, do you think that maybe that's a bridge that allows young people to enjoy the music as much as people who remembered the songs originally? Yeah, sure. I think there is a big link and I think the rhythm is one of the things that our music also works uh, outside of Estonia because we do sing in Estonian, uh, but people enjoy, people dance and people kind of like understand. We feel like on the stage that they, they understand us. I think it's the certain way of like this repetitive uh, rhythm things that uh, I think that people have them already like when they are born and it doesn't matter in which century you have it from the nature already some kind of uh, rhythm pulses for example your heart you know we all have the heart beating and that's already one kind of rhythm we have so i think these uh, old uh, songs um, uh, they have especially the spells we are using and this you know this uh, magical words that they have some kind of rhythm 
and uh, a nature rhythm in it that actually even nowadays people uh, feel. I don't know if they consciously understand it, but I think uh, subconsciously they feel it. So, um, Maris, you've you've heard the interview. Um, yeah. How, how how important are trad attack to um, to to Estonian culture and um, how, and and how how much do they show how traditional music can evolve and can be part of uh, you know people's modern listening as well? I love trad attack. I absolutely adore them, and they are uh, they are such a such a great example how you can actually. Um, bring history back to life. I mean, all of these uh, archive uh, melodies and archive recordings or that they are using, the, the, the song sang by Yalmar's great-grandmother, and then all of that mixed up with, um, with uh, fantastic new uh, music. It's, it's just such a great way to, uh, to use technology uh, to connect to your roots. So uh, I'm a, a big, big fan of, uh, of Trad Attack. I should mention uh, Yalmar, Yalmar Vabana, um, is uh, part of a great family of uh, folk musicians from Setomar uh, in southeast Estonia. Um, it's probably worth spending actually a few seconds talking about Setomar and what makes it different and distinct from Estonia. Uh, Seto is a, um, is a dialect, but they um, consider themselves to be a nation on its own, I, I believe. They um, elect a king or a queen every summer. I, I hope this is still can go ahead this summer as well. And they are orthodox as opposed to the rest of um, the rest of Estonia, mostly Lutheran. So Seto have a, a very um, distinct culture, a distinct language that I can't understand. Um, and um, Yes, they've been uh, really good at preserving their tradition throughout throughout um, uh, the modern era because uh, they live in in, the, in a remote corner of Estonia, away from big cities, and uh, and uh, the the community has been much much uh, stronger in keeping their traditions alive than in many other. So Trad Attack began from a traditional place and they've evolved. So um, in the second album, you could hear a few more sort of pop and rock stylings. Um, in, in this one, they almost sound like a uh, kind of a glam rock band that happens to take inspiration from field recordings of folk music. Um, I absolutely support it. I think this opens up a whole new uh, audience for them and they because they're the... The people who uh, who are fans of the very traditional, original traditional folk music is um, quite a limited number. But uh, it's uh, it's great tunes. It's great. It's great content that needs to be spread to uh, much more to a much larger larger audience. So I think they they are doing a fantastic job in here. Absolutely. Well, uh, Make Your Move by Trad Attack is available on uh, all physical formats uh, for delivery and also uh, available on your favourite streaming service as well. Uh, go and have a listen and uh, tell us what you think. If um, you would uh, like to donate to Kurosawa Hospital, then again, uh, the Facebook page uh, is facebook.com forward slash Sarah Heigler. That is facebook.com forward slash S-A-A-R-E-H-A-I-G-L-A. So facebook.com forward slash S-A-A-R-E-H-A-I-G-L-A. And um, there is a pinned post at the top which tells you how you can donate and what bank numbers are for international transactions and so on. Thank you for listening to Questonia. You can subscribe to this and future episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio from. From both of us, stay safe and keep questioning.